would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians as we get back into uh, our study of this book. Today we're going to be looking at Ephesians 5 verses 3 through 14. If you would like to follow along in the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you'll find our passage on page 978. We're going to focus in on today on verses 3 through 14 of chapter 5, but I'm going to go ahead and begin reading at the beginning of the chapter. So I'll read from verse 1 down through verse 14. Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality... In all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with, with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would open it to us now. Prepare our hearts and our minds to understand it, to believe it, to take it in and to see our lives transformed by what it says through your work. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see wonderful things from it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. had an interesting experience this past week. Uh, Some of you are probably aware that uh, the men's room right down the hallway here has a sensor, a light sensor that's not working quite properly. And sometimes if the light is off and you go into the restroom, uh, it won't come on right away until you wave your arms in front of it and truly convince that there is an actual human being in the room there. And sometimes the opposite problem happens, that if the light's on when you go in and you're in there for any period of time, then... If it doesn't sense that there's a human in there, it will actually shut off. So this past week I was in there doing what you do when you're in that room and uh, all of a sudden the light went off. Now you may know that that is an interior room. There are no windows around uh, that room and I didn't have my phone with me to be able to turn on the flashlight. It was pitch black in that room. Now, thankfully, I have been in that room before, and I was uh, familiar with what you do in that room, and so I didn't have any difficulties, but eventually was able to prop the door open and get some light into the room. But it reminded me of how dependent we are on light. 
and how much of a problem it can be to walk around in the darkness. Sometimes it's even dangerous. That's what Paul's talking about here today in this passage. Remember the context of what we're looking at today. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians that were in and around the city of Ephesus in the first century. That's in modern day Turkey. And this letter that he wrote to these people was to encourage God's people, the the Christians there in that area, to, to encourage them with the truth of what God had done for them, who God is and what He had done for them, and to spur them on to live as who they are. And we've been talking about the fact that this letter that Paul wrote is really broken up into two main sections. The first three chapters, Paul is driving home what is true about who they are. He tells them, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. But God, because of His rich and great mercy, because of His love for you, reconciled you to the Father in heaven. By grace alone He has saved you. That's the the, the hallmark of these first three chapters. What is true? The indicatives. There's almost no imperatives in these first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. It is full, full of indicatives. What is true of them? And then as he moves into the last three chapters, chapters four through six, it's filled with imperatives. Now that you know what is true, now that you know who you are, this is how you're supposed to live. This is what you're supposed to do. If you remind yourself, just flip back to chapter four and remind yourself of how he began this this application section in chapter four, verse one. He said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's a key concept throughout these three chapters is this idea of walking, this idea of living out our Christian faith, of taking what we believe and what is true of us. And then living as a result in a different way. This idea of walking comes up over and over again in chapter 4 verse 17. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the unbelieving Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. A little bit further in chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. In our passage that we're looking at today in verse 8, for one at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord, walk as children of light. And then the passage that we're going to be looking at next week in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. It kind of feels like Paul's repeating himself. He is. And for good reason, because he knows that It must be drilled home to us, not only what is true of us, the indicatives of what God has done for us and what he has made us to be, but also the imperatives and what we are supposed to do as a result. The last time we were looking at Ephesians, we were in chapter 4, verses 17 and following, and he used this contrast to talk about the walking, about putting off the old way and putting on the new way. Today, he's also got another contrast as he talks to us about how we're supposed to walk. The contrast today is not about the old and the new, but light and darkness. And here's Paul's main point for us today. Don't walk in the darkness. Instead, walk in the light. 
And the only way that you can do that, Paul is going to tell us, is that you have to know what God has made you to be so that you can go and do what He calls you to do. You must know what is true of you. You must know who you are, which then will move you and motivate you to do what He calls you to do. That's really the emphasis of this entire letter. Remember what is true of you, what God has made you to be, and as a result, live rightly. Do what you're supposed to do. So let's look at those two things, being and doing. First of all, what does Paul say about what God has made them to be? What is true of them and what is true of us in Christ Jesus? Well, you can see it in verse 8. Verse 8 is really the, the, the summary of this entire section. In fact, I would say it's really a summary of the entire book of Ephesians. He says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He starts by telling them what they are, what God has made them to be. You see the contrast that he says, you were darkness, but now you are light. He begins with the indicative, a statement of fact. You were darkness and now you are light. That is about their being, about what God has made them to be. And notice, it's not that they were in darkness, but that they were darkness. It's not that they, have, that they are in the light, but that they are now light. He's talking about their being, what he has done, what he has accomplished, and what he has made them to be, what is true of them, the indicative. And notice he tells them about how they have been moved from dark, from being darkness to being light. He says in verse 8, you are light in the Lord. Three of the most precious words in all of the scriptures. What that means when he says in the Lord or sometimes you'll see in Christ Jesus or in Jesus. It's that idea that because of the work of God, we have been united to Christ through faith by grace alone. We have been connected to Christ through faith. And as he told them at the beginning of the chapter in verses one and two, now we are God's beloved children. Jesus loved us and he gave himself for us. And he became a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God for us, adopting us into his family as his beloved brothers and sisters and the father's beloved children. That's what it means to be in the Lord. That's what it means to be brought out of darkness and into light, to be brought from darkness into light. We are now in the Lord. We are in Christ Jesus. So much so that at the end of the passage we're looking at in verse 14, Paul breaks out into song. It's probably set off a, way, a little bit differently in, your, in the passage that you're looking at. It's either a direct quote from, or a paraphrase, Paul paraphrase, paraphrasing from Isaiah 60, or some of the commentators think that this might be the chorus of an early Christian hymn. But he's speaking about the Ephesians who have been, who have been reconciled to God, who have been united to Christ, who are in the Lord. And he now says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead in Christ will shine on you. That's what's true of them. They've been awakened. They've been raised from the dead. And now Christ shines 
on them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must understand this truth first. Yes, Paul is going to move on in just a moment to speak about the fact that we are to walk as children of light, that we are not to walk in darkness. He will give us commands. He will give us the imperatives that follow. But what he begins with are the indicatives. What is true, what God has done, what he has made you to be. And that indicative is always to lead to the imperatives. And it's never the other way around. When we reverse the order that we try to earn God's approval, what we have is something that is not biblical Christianity. It will inevitably lead to all kinds of problems in this life. A life full of fear and doubt and shame before God. A life of weariness. A life... Of a lack that has a lack of power against our sin. Paul begins and says to the Ephesians and to us, What is true of you? Who have I made you to be? You once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, united to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are beloved children, you've been bought with a price. And now, once we're meditating on that truth, on those indicatives, Here come the imperatives. Here comes what we're supposed to do as a result. He says, stop walking in darkness and walk instead in light. It's really the beginning part of the passage that we looked at, verses 3 through 7, where he clearly tells them that they are to to not walk in the darkness. We get two imperatives in these, in these verses here, in all of these verses, that we a number of imperatives, but the two main ones that stick out are, first of all, in verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Walk in the light, don't walk in the darkness. Both of these are present, active imperatives. They are current, ongoing commands that he is giving to his people. First of all, don't walk in the darkness. That's what he's getting at in verses 3 through 7. Don't walk in the darkness. And he begins by describing the physical ways that we walk in the darkness at times. Verse 3. Sexual immorality. All impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. As is proper among the saints. The word there that's the, the two words sexual immorality is from the Greek word porneia. It has this sense of any kind of sexual activity outside of the biblical covenant of marriage. And he comes with another word. The second word that he uses is impurity. That's a broader term for general uncleanness. But here Paul is connecting it with, with sexual immorality. And so he's speaking about sexual impurity. And basically what he's saying is any kind of sexual activity outside of the biblical covenant of marriage, that's sexual morality, and any kind of unbiblical sexual behavior that's not included under sexual morality. All of those things, he says, are not accord with what it means to be a Christian. And and notice he uses a third word too, and it may be a word that doesn't seem quite in place. It, It is the word covetousness. I mean, the other two clearly have a very specific understanding and meaning. And yet here he comes with this word covetousness. And it doesn't seem like it like it fits that old Sesame Street song. One of these things isn't like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. Uh, Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. But Paul knows exactly what he's talking about. 
The tenth commandment is what? You shall not covet. And in the Deuteronomy the passage of the Ten Commandments, the very next words, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Paul here is speaking about a greed for impurity. It's actually the same word that he used in chapter 4, verse 19. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy. Covetous. To practice every kind of impurity. Paul says, these things are incompatible with the Christian life. Adultery, in fact, or in the heart. Sexual activity with someone who you are not married to. Greed for someone who is not your spouse. Coveting a spouse when you don't have one. Paul says, don't do these things. That's, that's the way of darkness. That's the way that you were. In fact, not only should you not do them, but notice Paul says, you shouldn't even be talking about them. It's unbecoming, he says. It's not proper. And I think that's the reason why he goes on in verse 4 to talk not only about the physical ways that we are tempted to go back into darkness, but the verbal ways. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, he says. The word filthiness means obscenity, shameful talk, sexually charged language, being vulgar. Dishonoring speech. Foolish talk, he, he, he says. Secondly, that, that silly talk. It's talk that is the opposite of wisdom. It is, it is speech that lacks respect. Or crude joking. Degrading and vulgar jokes. It has the sense of a wittiness or a cleverness in a malicious way. Paul says those things are out of place. They're, they're incompatible. They're incongruous with living as a Christian. That's what life was like in the darkness. Don't walk that way anymore, he says. Don't walk in the darkness. And in fact, he goes on in verses 7 and 11 to say, you shouldn't even be participating in those things. Verse 6, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, first of all, let's talk about what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that Christians are to have no contact with unbelievers. That would be impossible. We know that that's not what he's saying. Because in verse 11, he comes back and kind of explains it a bit more. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. What he's talking about here is really, he gets that by the word partners. It has this sense of participating. Don't participate in the sinful activities and lifestyle of those who are in the darkness around you. Don't take part in that, those kinds of dark activities. And to motivate them and to spur them on to this, he gives them two consequences of what happens when you do. In verses 5 and 6. He says in verse 5, For you may be sure of this. Anyone, everyone, who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. Now, let's be clear about what Paul is saying here. He's saying people who are this way have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And he goes on in verse 6 saying that they will experience the wrath of God. It's pretty severe language. But he's not talking here about Christians who have sinned in these ways and turned from those sins and repented and turned back to the Lord. 
These sins that he mentions in verses 3 and 4 are not the unpardonable sins. What he's referring to are people who are these things, who are persistent and unrepentant in these sins. And he says that it's severe, that it's significant to live that way to your dying day. Now, why is Paul telling them all of this? Why is Paul speaking to these believers in Ephesus and telling them these things? A friend of mine tells the story of a time when he was walking through a very busy airport. I don't remember which airport it was, but the picture that I have is you know, walking down one of the main terminals of a busy airport, full of people, people going in every direction. Some are running, some are loafing, you know, it's just luggage everywhere, uh, kids being dragged. I mean, it's just a, it's a hallway of confusion and chaos, right? And he remembers the time when he was walking down one of those hallways in a busy airport and there was a woman ahead of him that he was watching. She was kind of oblivious to everything that was happening and she was just walking straight ahead and coming directly for her was one of those people transport carts. You know the ones where the people sit in order to, to get a little more fast through the, the terminal and somebody's driving them through. And it was just like those, it, the lights were blaring and flashing and, and the beeping, annoying beeping noise was going off and the, the cart was full of people with luggage and, and it was coming right down the middle of the terminal, right in the direction the lady was walking. And he was watching, he was thinking she's going to move out of the way like people always do at the last minute. They, it's like the Red Sea where they part and the cart keeps going. But she kept walking and he, the, the cart kept coming and eventually the driver of the cart slammed on the brakes and stopped and the lady kept walking and went right into the cart. Now she wasn't blind, she wasn't deaf, she wasn't deranged. She was oblivious to what was happening around her. She was overwhelmed with all of the, the, the noise and the chaos. And she had basically just become numb. She had basically just tuned everything out and wasn't paying attention. And Paul understands that that's what we're like. What was true for these people in the first century is no less true for us in the 21st century. It is so easy for us as God's people to be living in times and places and environments and situations which could be characterized as darkness. And Paul knows the heart of the human being is so easily numbed to what is happening around us. Such that we tune it out and simply give in. Maybe in small ways or maybe in significant ways. And Paul is calling to us as God's people and saying, that is not you anymore. You are no longer darkness. Now you are light. And it matters a great deal. It's important. So don't walk in the darkness anymore. And I fully believe that none of us would walk into church on a Sunday morning and talk like the language that he's referring to in verse 4. We're too sophisticated for that, right? But what about in our homes? What about in our places of employment? What about when we're at school? What's the, what's the language? Not just that comes out of our mouths, but the language of our hearts. There's a pretty obvious application for any of us that are involved in any kind of sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage, Paul's very direct and clear about that. But how about those of us 
who covet and are greedy for impurity in our hearts. Craving impure and immoral things. Maybe coveting a spouse that's not ours. Or maybe coveting getting a spouse. Paul says these things are incompatible with the Christian life. Those are the old ways of darkness. Don't walk in the darkness anymore. Instead, he says, walk in the light. That's what he says in verse 8. At one time you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, of light. What does that mean? What does it mean to walk in light? Well, one of the things that I think it means is that we ought to be discerning. I mean, after all, that's what Paul says in verse 10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That, that word discern means to put to the test, to examine, to evaluate. It, it's connected uh, with this idea in the ancient culture of making sure that what you've been given is real. If you watch the Olympics... Uh, inevitably, there's always a photo opportunity of the Olympic athletes that win the medals. They're standing up on the, uh, on the podium, or maybe they're gathered together with their friends if it was a group activity that they all won medals for. And there's always a, a particular photo op that they, they, ta- they take. They take the medal, and they put it in their mouth, and they bite down on it, Right? That's actually a very ancient custom that's connected with this idea of discerning. In the ancient cultures, athletes would bite on the metal to make sure that it was real. To, to, to test it, to, to, to discern that it was actually the metal that they were supposed to get. And do you see what Paul is saying here? That's part of what walking in the light means, is that we are to live lives discerning if our lives are pleasing to the Lord. Examining our lives, testing our lives. Reflecting on what we're reading, what we're watching, reflecting on our dating relationships, reflecting about how we talk to people, how we interact on social media. And this idea of discerning is, has the sense of doing it proactively before we fall into the sins that are mentioned in verses 3 and 4. What is the state of our hearts? Are we going down the wrong road? Turn away. Discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Repent of what is wrong. And walk in the light. That's part of what it means to walk in the light. It's to be discerning. But another part of it is to be different. That's what he's getting at in verses 11 through 14. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, he says, expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible... His light. Don't take part. Be different, he says. Don't take part in these unfruitful works of darkness that he's already described. Instead, as light, expose those works of darkness. Don't walk in the darkness in the old ways. You are light. Walk as who you are and bring the light of God's truth into the darkness. Maybe through speaking. Certainly through living. There's an interesting implication that I think you can draw from this. And that is God saying that maybe he'll use you as light in the midst of darkness to draw people out of darkness into light. So what does all this look like? What does it look like to be different? Well, one way you could say that it looks like is to live a life of thanksgiving. Now, where do I get that from? Well, it's actually what Paul says in verse 4. 
Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Isn't it interesting that in contrast to those things in verse 4, he says we ought to be thanksgiving. Why? Because when those kinds of things are coming out of our hearts and out of our minds and out of our, our, out of our mouths, what we're exhibiting, what we're showing, is not a thanksgiving to the Lord. In contrast, he's saying we ought to be people who are full of thanksgiving, thankful to the Lord for the blessings and the generosities that he has showered on us in his creation and certainly in redemption, in reconciling us and redeeming us. But we ought to have a general mindset and an attitude of thankfulness in every aspect of our lives. In almost every situation we face, there is always something to be thankful about. And we won't see it if our life is full of immorality and greed and crude joking and cynicism. But Paul's saying living in the light means living a thankful life to the Lord first and foremost. But all of our lives. Another way that it looks to be different is being connected with unbelievers but not participating in works of darkness. That is not cutting ourselves out and off from unbelieving people. We should have acquaintances. We should have friendships with unbelievers. But in the midst of those relationships, maintaining biblical ethics, being different in front of them, being like what he says in verse 9, the fruit of living as light is, is, is expressing and, and following that which is good and right and true. That we would let the light of God's truth shine into the darkness and be ready to give reason for the hope that we have. One last way that it can look to be different is going back to what he said in verse 2. That we would be people who walk in genuine love. You understand that would be different. That would be different than the culture of darkness that so often surrounds us. Demonstrating a true genuine love for others. And Paul says, to the degree that you have been loved by Jesus Christ, express that love to others. It includes giving respect and dignity to others simply because they're made in the image of God. It is putting the needs of others ahead of ourselves. It impacts how we treat employees at the stores that we shop at. It impacts how we treat the waitresses and the waiters at the restaurants where we eat. It impacts how we address people on social media. It impacts how we treat our patients. How we treat our doctors and nurses. It impacts how we help someone at school who's hurting. This is what walking in the light looks like. It is to be discerning of what is pleasing to the Lord and to do those things and to be truly different as the light shines in the darkness. A pastor friend of mine tells the story about a significant change that took place in his parenting when he had little children. He had a, a three little children and... He describes how he normally would interact with them when they were doing something they shouldn't do. And I remember one story in particular. Is he had a son named Colin. And he was telling the story about when Colin was maybe five or six years old and doing something he shouldn't be doing. And he remembered very clearly this old way of how he used to approach Colin. 
He would say, Colin, you're a bad boy. Stop it. Now, it would usually get his attention and maybe even cause him to stop doing what he was doing. But rarely was it effective long term. And more than that, what my pastor friend realized was how horrible of a message it was sending to that child. It often would demoralize him. He realized what he was saying to his child was not what his heavenly father had said to him. Did you hear it? Colin, you are a bad boy. Stop it. He realized that if he was going to be in line with the gospel and in line with how his father in heaven spoke to him, he needed to change how he approached his own children. And so he changed. And it became a sense of like this. Colin, you are my son. And I love you. And what you're doing is wrong. And it's harmful. And you need to stop. Because it's not in line with who you are. Do you hear what your Heavenly Father is saying to you this morning? What is true about you? You, you are His beloved child. He has redeemed you with nothing less than the sacrifice of His own Son. And He loves you. And He calls to you in the midst of doing things in the darkness. And He says, those things are wrong and those things are harmful. And they're not in line with who you are. You are my son. You are my daughter. Don't walk in the darkness anymore. Instead, walk in the light. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we read in your word that you are our Father. And so we believe it's true, and yet so often it's hard for us to believe it because of the way we act. Remind us through your word, remind us through the Lord's Supper, that indeed we are your beloved children. Help us, Father, to understand the indicatives of who we are, what you've made us to be. And so, Father, give us the ability to do what we are to do, to live like who we are. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This table that we come to uh, each Sunday as we conclude our worship service is a table that tells the story of the greatest light breaking into the darkest darkness. Just one chapter after what Matthew has recorded here, we'll read about Jesus Christ on the cross. The light of the world came into the world and was hanging on the cross. And Matthew tells us that as Jesus was hanging on the cross before he died, darkness came over the land. And shortly thereafter, Jesus yelled out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken by his father, he died. And he was buried. But then three days later, light overcame darkness. It overcame the darkness of the tomb where they laid Jesus' body. It overcame the darkness of sin by conquering it once and for all. It overcame even death itself. 
And as we come every week to this table, we celebrate the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ given for us to pay for our sins, to reconcile us with our Father in heaven, and to credit us with nothing less than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This table is the table of the story of God working His redemption and taking us from darkness and making us children of light. And the promise is that He feeds us by reminding us of His love for us, of His care for us, of what He has done, what He has made us to be, but also through the work of the Holy Spirit as we come and partake in faith, that our faith will be strengthened through the work of the Holy Spirit. So that not only we will believe what is true of us, the indicative, but we'll go out motivated and moved to do what we are called to do, the imperatives. If that's you this morning, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have put your faith in Christ alone for your salvation and you've publicly professed that faith here at Trinity or another church that believes the Word of God is true and God's salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, then eat and drink, be reminded of what God has done and what He has made you to be. Be encouraged as you partake in faith that the work of the Holy Spirit will strengthen our faith to send us out to be who we are to be and to do as who we are called to be. But if that's not you this morning, then we invite you to allow the elements to pass you by and instead to use the opportunity to pray and ask the Lord to reveal Himself as true to you. Let's pause and thank the Lord for giving us this table. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you with thankful hearts, thankful for your work of creation, thankful for your work of redemption. In particular, as we come to this table, we're thankful for the work of our Savior, His body, His blood given for us to reconcile us to you. As we remember that today, as we trust in it again today, we pray that you would strengthen us, that we might truly glorify and enjoy you this week ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.